I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Planet Premier League podcast. Each week, Cesc Fabregas, Nader Manua and myself talk all things Premier League. As a player, you don't have time to talk. No. You don't have time to make a plan. You just need to deal with wave after wave after wave. We watched Coach Carter and he said, oh, afterwards, the game's just about doing this for your teammates. And I remember looking around halfway through the film and half the squad was asleep. <laughs> Planet Premier League. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hey everybody, this is Richard Deitch and welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. My producer is Patrick Antonetti. The guest this week is Jason Reed. He is a senior NFL writer for ESPN's Anscape. And his new book is The Rise of the Black Quarterback, What It Means for America. And in this podcast, Jason discusses uh, the black quarterbacks of the 1960s and 1970s in the AFL and the NFL and everything they had to go through. And you'll hear about how horrific it was, including bagfuls of hate mail that players received the idea of positional segregation which existed for black athletes for a long time pushed not to play quarterback or um, you got a lot of you know they couldn't handle the position you know weren't the right didn't have the right temperament or weren't the right leaders um, the the history of that position when it comes to black athletes is uh, is pretty brutal thankfully we are in a better place today Jason does discuss the uh, the current star African-American quarterbacks like Patrick Mahomes, Lamar Jackson, Kyler Murray. We get into the importance of Doug Williams and Randall Cunningham, a little bit on Kaepernick and uh, and how that situation was covered. I think you'll find this really interesting. Um, I certainly did. The book, again, The Rise of the Black Quarterback and What It Means for America. Jason Reed is the author. I want to thank everybody for their support of this podcast. Again, how it stays on, please, uh, if you like it, head to... Uh, Wherever you leave your reviews uh, for Stitcher or Apple or whatever it is, leave us a five-star review and a nice note. That is how this podcast continues. All right, without any further ado, Anscape senior NFL writer Jason Reed on his new book, The Rise of the Black Quarterback, What It Means for America. All right, as I said at the top, Jason Reed is a senior NFL writer. Brandscape and a if you're a football fan, you probably recognize the name. A long time chronicler of the NFL, including stops at the Washington Post. He worked at the LA Times. He's here for his new book, The Rise of the Black Quarterback: What It Means for America. Uh, I've been a long admirer of Jason Reed's work um, and have talked to him uh, a number of times. I think this might be the first time he's been on this podcast. I think he might have been on my SI one, but I don't remember. Regardless, I am pleased to be joined by Jason Reed. Jason, welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. Hey, thank you for having me, Richard. Yeah, your, your recollection is correct. I believe I was on the previous one. I appreciate that. All right, Jason. I mean, listen, you've done a lot of promotion, so I'm going to, uh, you know, let's, let's, uh, I know your, your, um, uh, your schedule has been very, very busy, so thank you for making the time. All right. Um, Here's where I want to start. The the black quarterbacks of the 1960s and 1970s, they've always fascinated me um, because um, sports fans, certainly younger ones today, have no idea of what they went through regarding prejudice of the position, um, just the institutional racism that exists in the NFL. And many, in many ways, I, that, that prejudice still exists today. Um, this is sort of a broad question to start with, but, but what themes did you find that uh, – where you saw a through line for all 
um, for what the quarterbacks, the black quarterbacks of the '60s and and '70s had to deal with. Yeah, well, you know, Richard. I mean, everything you just said is, I mean, obviously correct. And in terms of the through lines, I mean, the main one was just well, there were several, but 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 I think the thing um, you know that you're hitting on uh, the most prominent was the fact that there was just a long-standing belief and and it, it it continued through the 60s and 70s that black players were just simply not bright enough to play the quarterback position because you know it's the ultimate thinking man's position you have to read the defenses you have to make you have to help the the center on the line with adjustments you you have to be able to improvise when everything else breaks down and the the thought process was and it wasn't it wasn't uh, anything that was actually you know written down on paper. It was just an understanding that black players were not bright enough to play the thinking man's positions, the up the middle positions, center on the offensive line because you have to make the line help with the line adjustments, middle linebacker on defense because that's the quarterback of the defense. They make the a lot of the defensive calls, and then the ultimate thinking man's position quarterback. So blacks were not just simply not bright enough to do that. Also, another through line was that. And this continued all the way through the 70s, that blacks were not leaders, that they that they were incapable of leading uh, white men. You know, maybe they could lead black men, but they couldn't lead white men. Um, And then another through line is that black men lack courage. Uh, You you know, for the quarterback position, all the things that swirl around that there's also an understanding that you have to be tough. You have to have, you know, quote unquote heart. You have to be able to stand in the pocket and take hits and and get up and show your teammates that you're you're a tough guy, that you can you can get them to where they need to go, even if you're dragging a limb around the field. So the lack of intelligence, lack of toughness and the inability to lead white men. Those are the through lines, the main ones that we see through well throughout NFL history to that point, but definitely continuing into the 60s and the 70s. And uh, Jason, in in this June, Marlon Briscoe, he was the first quarterback, the first black starting quarterback in the AFL. He died in uh, at the age of seventy six. Obviously, he's a pretty big focal point of your book. Can you let my one of the things that you know you read about sports, and it's a horribly unfortunate thing, but the realities that happen is the the amount of racial animus that Jackie Robinson had to deal with absolutely killed him earlier than he should have passed away. Um, you've We've read about the death threats that like Hank Aaron endured when he was pursuing Babe Ruth's um, record. Um, from your research, what kind of like mental stress did quarterbacks such as Marlon Briscoe and James Harris have to deal with that were external, had nothing to do with the game itself, but just either things written about them, death th- threats that they received, or just the kind of BS that they had to deal with that had nothing to do with the game itself. Well, you know, let, let me let me touch on James Harris before I go back to Marlon Briscoe because you brought him up. The James Harris was really great for me um, with the book and taking time to walk me through things. And you know, one of the one of the anecdotes, you know, I came to this Richard thinking that look, I, I mean, I I'm a, I, I've always enjoyed history and I've always liked reading about history, and obviously, I knew these men faced a great deal of racism at that point. But I didn't really understand the depth of it. Um, James Harris, who was the first black starting quarterback to start in a Pro Bowl and to start a playoff game. James Harris told me that 
when he was a rookie with the Buffalo Bills, you know, they went to, to training camp, uh, Siena College in New York, and he had so much hate mail that they couldn't bring it back. They, he couldn't get it all to the dorms. He had to help get help to bring all of his hate mail back to the dorm with him because you had to go down to an area on campus, pick it up, and then would go back to your dorm room with it. And, you know, he... Look, he played at Grambling University, which was a which is a, an historically black college or university. And he didn't really have many dealings with people who are other than black for most of his life growing up where he grew up and playing at Grambling in Louisiana. So it was such a shock to him to open this mail as he's a rookie with the Buffalo Bills preparing for the season and letter after letter. I mean, if you can just process this in your mind, think about someone sitting at a desk with, with buckets of mail around and each letter you open is, I want you dead. You end, uh, you, you better not step on that field. You end, you better, you better just quit right now. You end, I mean, just letter after letter after letter. And, um, he, it, it, it took a toll on him, even in that rookie season where he he went out and he competed because this is what he always wanted to do. But it was so devastating for him in terms of really beginning for the first time in his life to understand. I mean, he knew he grew up in the South during the Jim in the Jim Crow South, so he knew about racism. But when it's directed at you in such a visceral daily manner, it's something that look, I don't know how I would have dealt with something like that. Um, so that's James Harris. That's just one little glimpse in what he had to do. But Marlon Briscoe, you know, Marlon, again, another guy, another man who I'm, I'm so appreciative that he that he trusted me with his story. Um, and, you know, I remember one of the interviews we did for the book, we were sitting down over lunch. And, you know, for people who don't know Marlon's story, Marlon was a star quarterback at the University of Nebraska, Omaha. You know, not not the one at Lincoln, the Huskers that we all know. This is a small school, but he was a star quarterback. But 1968, black men were not being drafted to play quarterback in either the old AFL or the NFL before the leagues merged. And the Broncos of the old AFL, this is before they were in the NFL, they liked Marlon. They they saw his athleticism and they drafted him they drafted him in the 14th round to be a cornerback. But Marlon says, no, I'm not going to I'm not going to come. I'm not going to sign unless you give me a trial at quarterback. The trial was completely rigged, Richard. He had no shot at getting the job, but he did it by all accounts, not just from Marlon, but from researching it. He performed well. So he signs as a quarterback. Starting quarterback gets hurt. Other other players are ineffective. They're 0-3. They throw him out there. Okay. To the shock of management. And the coaching staff, he performs really well. He throws 14 touchdown passes. That's a Denver Broncos rookie record. He finishes high in the AFL Rookie of the Year voting. He goes home to Omaha to work on him to finish up his degree, gets a phone call. Someone tells him, hey, look, I just want to let you know they're having quarterback meetings here. He's like, well, that's impossible. I'm the quarterback. Marlon gets on a plane, goes back to Denver immediately, finds out he's out. It was one thing for the Broncos when they had no one else and they were having a bad year to give a black quarterback a try. But even though he succeeded, they they were not going to move forward with him in fear of angering white fans. So he reinvents him. He gets released, reinvents himself or forces his release, rather reinvents himself as a wide receiver, becomes a great wide receiver for a year with the Buffalo Bills, one of the best players in the league, gets traded to the Dolphins, Wins a couple of Super Bowls. He's on Shula's undefeated team. Um, you know, plays in the NFL, never gets to play quarterback again. Retires 
And, you know, so decades later, I'm sitting across the table from him having lunch. And I said, you know, how did you get over that? Because he proved he could do it and it was taken away from him. And I'll never forget what he told me. And may he rest in peace. He says to me, you're assuming I have. Yeah. So that's that's what we're talking about. Uh, Wow. Thank you for thank you for recounting that. So I have a couple of sort of follow ups on what you just said in. um in today's world, Jason, and I'm not, I'm certainly not um, naive to the fact that racism doesn't exist, but if a starting quarterback in the league got boatloads of uh, hate mail, it, it would be a national story. You would probably see the letters. You would, I think in probably many ways, um, the people who wrote those letters would be doxxed. It just would, I'm, again, it's a different time, and I think um, it's a better time in many ways, thank God. So that's the reality of today. What I'm curious about is in your research, when the when things like that happen to these quarterbacks, like was the organiz like how did the organization, how did the NFL organizations deal with it? Did they not deal with it at all? Did they just put all the the mental strain on the quarterback? Like was there any infrastructure to deal with this cuz that's I know it's a different time, but man, like it just makes me think that these guys were so alone with nobody helping them out. Yeah, they were alone. And, you know, you talk about, look, clearly it's a different time. And, um, you know, but but back in those days when when James Harris was was breaking in in 69 and Marlon Briscoe in 68 and uh, Jefferson Street, Joe Gilliam with the, with the Pittsburgh Steelers in the, in the in the early to mid 70s, there was no infrastructure in place to deal with, OK, these black quarterbacks being treated horribly and getting, you know, bucket loads, you know, basket loads of hate mail. These these teams, these organizations weren't set up for this. I mean, you, you got to remember, we're talking about a time when concussions were not talked about. Okay, we, we're talking about a time where the 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 the, uh, the, the trainers room, you know, you, you you taped the guy back up and you sent them back out there. He could have torn cartilage in his knee. Okay, so we we've advanced a lot. From those days of football and you know no i remember again going back to james harris you know i asked him well you know what did the team do he's like i mean i had to deal with it it wasn't like you know now you have you know now we know about the the science and the psychology of sports now these teams have have psychologists that that the players can speak with they they have infrastructure when when players come into the league with rookies they're, they're 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 told about how you know how to handle things, how to manage things, resources where if they're in trouble from either a physical standpoint or a mental health standpoint, they can reach out to people. Well, we've made progress. But back in those days, nothing like that existed. So those players had to cope with the situation on their own or with family members. Um, you know, I, 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 I don't want to get too far astray here, but uh, Jefferson Street, Joe Gilliam, who was the starting quarterback of the Pittsburgh Steelers before Bradshaw, the year that they took off and won their first Super Bowl and the dynasty started, Jefferson Street Joe Gilliam entered that season as a starter. And he got off to a great start, but but he struggled and 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 the hate mail that he got was a factor. Now some people listening to this podcast might say, well, they lack mental toughness, that well, okay, they just had to fight through it. I mean, look, I, I guess that's an argument someone can make, but when you talk about racism that 
is draining down just on you for what you do in a very public position. I don't know how I would handle that. You know, maybe so for what for, for what that's worth. So I'm going to sort of jump in. I'm going to jump present day and then go back, obviously, uh, into the past, which I believe your book does. The reality is that in today's world, thankfully, talent usually um, wins out regardless of what your ethnicity is, regardless of what your race is. If you are a great player at the quarterback position, as the expression goes, they'll find you and play and, and play you there. That's it, Jason. This is important. Some of this racial mythology, though, about black quarterbacks still exists today. And where we have seen it, and I, I know you've written about this, is like the, the bullshit anonymous scout stuff where someone will say, uh, we're not, you know, a wonderlick score leaks and we're not sure like if, if the player is the perfect fit for the position or the, the, you know, a lot of times we'll get it sort of coded in that, like, um, not a straight drop back quarterback, you know, like a, a freelance kind of quarterback doesn't have the requisite skills for quarterbacks. So while I agree 2022, much better, um, place, how do you view some of these lingering things that still exist and where they generally linger, at least from my perspective, is sort of with these anonymous quotes. Yeah, absolutely. Look, I, you know, I've tried to be very clear about this uh, throughout uh, you know, every interview I've done talking about the book. There has never been a better time to be a black man who plays quarterback in the NFL. These guys have the biggest contracts. I mean, literally, they have the if, if you look at it, they have the biggest guarantees uh, on the top 10. List, there are like five of them who have the top guarantees. Uh, they are adored by fans. They are the face of the franchise. They have power, which was once considered unfathomable to shape league events. But progress is not perfection, obviously. And, you know, you, you reference these anonymous quotes. And Patrick Mahomes felt compelled to recently address some anonymous quotes about him and Lamar Jackson. You know, one of the quote about Lamar, excuse me, the quote about Patrick Mahomes was that once he comes, he, he, he can basically only do his first, I'm paraphrasing, but he can basically only do one read of a defense. And then he has to play street ball. And that's when the team loses. The quote was so ridiculous on so many fronts. But first of all, he does, he's not a one-read quarterback, but when you say he's a one-read quarterback, that brings to mind all those old references about black quarterbacks not being smart enough to survey a defense and stay in the pocket and make a throw. That you know, Andy Reid disputed that. Uh, Andy Reid, the coach of the Kansas City Chiefs, talked about how many times he goes to his second and third read. But the other part about it was that once he comes off of that first read, he has to play "quote unquote" street ball. Well, that's exactly what you were just referencing about you know the whole mindset. But oh, they have to just run around back there. They they're not really good enough to play. And another part of the quote was that that's when the Chiefs lose in the history of the Super Bowl era. Ken Stabler, the Hall of Fame quarterback of the Oakland Raiders, the late Hall of Fame quarterback of the Oakland Raiders, had the best record through fifty starts at forty wins, nine losses, and one tie. The guy who's second on that list in the Super Bowl era through 50 starts, Patrick Mahomes, is 40 and 10. He's played in two Super Bowls, 1-1. One, one. He's been he, he's finished every season that he's been the starter in the at least getting to the AFC Championship game. And at 24, when he was 24, he was the youngest player in the history of the league to have a Super Bowl trophy, a Super Bowl MVP award, and a league MVP award. So to say that that he has to play street ball 
essentially because he's not smart enough to read the defense. And that's when the Chiefs lose. The Chiefs don't lose since he's been the quarterback. I, I mean, it, it, it's, it, it was so ridiculous on its face. And then the Lamar Jackson stuff about, well, you know, I don't care. The, the anonymous quote was, I don't care if he wins 12 MVP awards. He's not going to be a, a top tier quarterback for me and he can't pass the ball to win. Clearly, Lamar Jackson is not the best pocket passer in the NFL. I can point to metrics that show he is effective in passing situations, has improved. I can point to week five last season when he passed for 442 yards and four touchdowns and set completion percentage records. But the reality of it is, is that the, the Ravens play a certain way. But to say that they cannot pass at all and win... You know, it, it, it brings to mind, look, I, I don't know what was in the hearts and minds of those anonymous defensive coaches, but it does bring to mind a, an era when black people were just thought to be so inferior that black quarterbacks could not make it in the NFL. And the two examples cited were two guys who had been so successful that it's just like, I mean, really, is this is this really where we still are? And, you know, Mahomes and, 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 and real quick, Richard, I know I'm getting long winded here, but but but, you know, Mahomes addressed it in his quote. Again, I'm paraphrasing. But what he basically said was, you know, black quarterbacks have had to fight to get to the point we are. And we've proven that we should have been here all along. But sometimes still, even today, some of the criticism about about us doesn't sound like some of the criticism about some people who don't look like us. You know, Brett Favre was a guy who was one of the greatest quarterbacks in NFL history. But what they said about Brett, Brett Favre wasn't that he played street ball, was that he was a gunslinger. Okay. And so we, we see some of this, this language that we have to acknowledge there's something other, there's something undergirding it that's not undergirding some other things. Right. Yeah. I mean, one, one, one is a gunslinger and the other takes too many risks. That's, but they're the same thing if you think about it. Um, you know, I think you would agree with me, Jason, that positional segregation no longer exists in the NFL. If, if you are a great quarterback and you are black, you're playing quarterback. Maybe even in college. I, I, maybe it does, but I think it's certainly much better. So here's a question I want to ask you, especially given your research. Where it would strike me where this would still exist might be high school. And then, so the question would be from, and again, I'm asking, you, you, you obviously don't cover high school sports, but... You, you have, you know, there's few experts in the country sort of more better to answer the que this question than you. If the if these great athletes are not sort of directed to quarterback in high school, the likelihood is they have already become a running back or wide receiver or a tackle or whatever, and that's what they're going to play in college. Do you think the inst inst institutionally have things changed now where this positional segregation, which was beyond clear in college in the 70s and 80s and 60s, is that totally over? And I, maybe the only way to know this would be to see how many um, black quarterbacks there are in the, at the high school level, 9th, 10th, and 11th, 12th graders. But, but this would be my hope that at least there's no kid who's so gifted at 12 years old who wants to be a quarterback that that kid is not pushed into another position and that kid is allowed to have a chance to play quarterback. I actually do feel I'm qualified to answer this for this reason. I'm, I'm right. an old newspaper guy, and I started out when I broke into the business covering high school football and recruiting. And, you know, I remember when I was a young reporter, I would go to these elite quarterback camps, you know, where the where the coaches are working with, you know, the four and five star prospects who are rising to be recruited. And you would never see a black face in any of those camps like you. I mean, I would go to I, and I remember being 21, 22 years old thinking, man, there are no black kids here at all. 
Now, if you go to those camps, you'll see black faces all over there. You'll see black four and five star quarterbacks getting recruited left to right. And I'll go even a step further at the youth football level where this positional segregation was where it started, where, where kids were moved to positions at eight, nine, 10 years old. I have a very good friend his, his son, he, who happens to be black. His son is a, is a quarterback, and he, he was showing me videos of this. They even have elite youth quarterback camps. Okay, That's how, that's how the, the industry of football is. And he was showing me a video. Black kids were all over this thing. And these are kids who are being invited to come because they're looked at as the rising players in these regions of the country at that position. And I'll take it further. Let's go to the, to the traditional powers in college football, the Alabamas, the USC's, the Ohio State's, all led by black quarterbacks. So not only is the positional segregation gone, what I like, to, based on my research, what I like to say is we are now in the era of the black quarterback because the pipeline from youth football to high school to college is so deep now, it would not be in the least bit surprising in the next five to 10 years to see 16, 12 to 16 superstar black quarterbacks leading the NFL teams. There are 32 NFL teams. And that's something that no one saw coming, you know, in 10, 15 years ago. In, 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 as a historian, um, how do you look at the impact of Doug Williams becoming the first black quarterback to start and win a Super Bowl? Well, clearly, Richard, that was a seminal moment because what it did was I mean, Doug Williams, the first black quarterback drafted in the first round of the NFL draft, 1978. League started in 1920. A black quarterback was not taken in the first round of the NFL draft until 1978. Um you know, so you can't tell this story without Doug Williams. But then, you know, the Super Bowl performance against the Denver Broncos when he was leading uh, the team that's now known as the Washington Commanders, uh, 340 yards, four touchdown passes. Washington just eviscerates Denver. Denver led by John Elway. You know, I mean, and, and you can't the, the you have to acknowledge what the stage was, John Elway, blonde hair, blue eyed, you know, six, three strong arm matinee idol, everything that the quarterback in the NFL is supposed to be. And then, you know, on the opposite sideline, you had Doug Williams, this black guy from, you know, the segregated South who played in HBCU. He outperformed his counterpart who represented everything that, that that position historically was, had been about in addition, you know, in addition to race, um, seminal moment, it, it, it planted a seed with owners that, well, you know, maybe these black guys possibly can do, but that didn't open up all of a sudden, you know, a, a change in thinking where black teams all of a sudden went on and got black quarterbacks. It, so I, I look at Doug's performance as, as, as lighting the match, so to speak. But then really, you know, the, the, the fire got really moving with Warren Moon. You know, Warren Moon, he, he doesn't get drafted out of the University of Washington in 1978. He's a co-player of the conference, led the team to a Rose Bowl victory, or, or at least helped the team in a Rose Bowl victory, and doesn't get drafted. And, you know, he goes to Canada, has this incredible career in Canada, record-setting career in Canada, uh, you know, wins championships, piles up yards and touchdowns, gets drafted, excuse me, gets signed as a free agent with the Houston Oilers. And after, you know, a rough transition period, I mean, he, he did have a, a transition period, he gets rolling, becomes a perennial pro bowler, you know, finishes high in the MVP voting. Um, 
uh, winds up becoming the only black passer enshrined in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. But so we see in the late 1980s, the early 1990s, we go from Doug Williams' seminal performance, Warren Moon does it from the pocket so they can't say he's a guy running around. And then Randall Cunningham, the ultimate weapon in Philadelphia, this dual threat quarterback, the league had never seen this before. So I really look at those three as getting us moving into this modern era. All right, a couple more here. You, um, you're you're smart enough to know, Jason, that for the last, uh, you know, whatever it's been, six plus years, anytime people write about Colin Kaepernick, um, th- there's a uh, there's always going to be um, a group that either refuses t- to want to hear it, claims that um, the person writing about Colin Kaepernick is is polarizing. Um, the situation. So within this sort of ecosystem, you, you write this book. Um, and I wonder just what, and, and it's a passion project for you and it's obviously an incredibly important subject, but I wonder just if you could, and this is more of a sort of a, maybe a process and, uh, and, uh, optics kind of question. Um, how has it been received and have, and how have you, um, analyzed the temperature for people um, sort of dealing, not dealing, yeah, right, dealing, dealing with this subject because we have, my God, like it, 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 all of us sort of saw just the amount of pushback when, when, when those of us were writing about Colin Kaepernick as if to sort of say, well, enough, we don't want to talk about this, you know, and many times people just don't want to acknowledge what's out, what's in front of them. So I didn't really ask that no, question. No, but no, you, no, you did. Wondered, no, no, you did. Yeah. What's the re- what's the reception? Yeah, man, you guess, know, look, whenever you write about race, there's a group of people going to be like, why do we still have to talk about this? It's 2022. Why are we still talking about stuff that happened, you know, 100 or 50 or even 25 or 10 years ago? Uh, and, and, you know, if you write about race, you go into it with that understanding. So I, I've been very uh, it, it's been heartening to see the response that I've gotten to the book. Um, I, I, I can best gauge it by social media and direct email that I've received. And um, overwhelmingly, I'd say the, the, the response to the book has been very su- supportive. And um, again, I've, I've, been, I've been touched by a lot of the uh, email I've received. Now, <laughs> are there people who are like, hey, you know, we hate this subject. You know, you're, you're just a you know, you're a racist for even right. I mean, I, th- that's the main one that you're a racist for even writing something like this, which you know, I'm not going to go down that rabbit hole, obviously, and try to decipher what what that person construes as logic. But, um, yeah, it, it, there was the reception, at least that I have been uh, presented with. You know, I don't know what maybe what other people, are, but at least what I've received has been very encouraging. And, and, I, and I'm you know, it is a passion project for me. I'm I'm, you know, I'm very proud of it. I'm, I'm, pr- I'm proud of the reviews that I've gotten on it. Um, but I definitely, it means a lot to me that people will say, "Hey, look, this. I think this book is important, and I, and I, and I'm very happy that you wrote it." Now, with the Kaepernick question, you know, the, or the Kaepernick part of the question, I knew that I had to have a chapter in the book on Colin Kaepernick because it, it, it would have been disingenuous for me to write about the rise of the black quarterback in the NFL and not talk about oh, black, the, black quarterback, the black quarterback who changed so much. And, you know, my whole thing, Richard, is, and I used to get into it 
um, in my younger days when Kaepernick started doing this, I used to get into it with a lot of writers um, who, you know, would say, well, you know, he's, the only reason he's not in the league is he's not good enough. And I'd be like, well, you, you're just carrying the league's water on that. You're carrying the owner's water because we, you know, we can have a debate on how many teams he can start on. And, I, and anybody, you, you can't have a credible argument that he's as good as Tom Brady or, you know, but if, if, if we're talking about him just being on a team, I don't know about now, five years out. But when, but when it happened, he was one of the 62 best quarterbacks in the world. It's just, you couldn't. And, now, and that was, I mean, and my point to like, when I get into it and I used to get into it, you know, like again, my younger days with, with some writers on Twitter and, you know, I would be like, oh, wait a minute. The guy's made 58 career starts. He has, he has one of the best touchdowns to interception ratios in the league. He helped a team get to the play. He helped the team reach a Super Bowl. The next year they reached an NFC championship game. I mean, again, I'm not saying that he could start on every team in the league. And I'm not saying he's one of the best quarterbacks, but if you're telling me with the dearth of quarterback play in this league, with, with you got guys who are on rosters who literally like cannot pass the ball without making a major mistake, like these guys are hanging on, and this guy who's proven it over 58 career starts. So, yeah, um, you know, the Kaepernick situation, look, the only reason he's not in the league is because he, he angered the owners because he, he threatened their business model or he, they thought he could threaten their ability to continue to expand exponentially every year. Um, but as we've seen, the NFL is, is not just recession-proof. It's, it's, it's protest-proof. Like, yeah, the fans, the, the, the fa white fans, and I say white fans because this issue largely breaks down based on polling along racial lines. And white fans were angry and a lot and a lot of them did go away. But you know what? As we saw with this with the playoffs last year, with the with the ridiculous ratings and and how great the games were, they all came back or at least enough of them came back to make the ratings great and make Roger Goodell look like a superstar with the owners again. So, you know, um, it's uh, the Kaepernick situation is always going to be a, a black eye in this league, in my estimation, simply because this man's career was taken away from him because he decided to shine a light on systemic oppression and police brutality at a time. The owners were not ready for that and welcoming of it. Now we saw what happened. I know I'm getting long winded again, so just shut me up if you need to. But when Patrick Mahomes took a stand in that video, and said Black Lives Matter and said, we want the NFL to start doing these things with us. Well, Patrick Mahomes at that point was the unquestioned, he was the unquestioned guy. He was the number one player in the NFL when he did that. And he, he maintained his status. He didn't lose his career. So, you know, I look at the Ka Kaepernick situation. If Kaepernick had been as good as Tom Brady, he'd still be playing. But he was, he was just not good enough to the, for the NFL to say, well, we don't need him. But if he had been Patrick Mahomes, he'd still be in the league. TJ Yates and Nathan Peterman were roster quarterbacks go. in the NFL during that time. I mean, do we really even have to have this conversation? It's just, it's just nonsense. Um, all right. The last, um, the last one for you, um, you know, it, Deion Sanders has been an interesting figure because um, he, he sort of has made the, the, um, the push that like, um, historically black colleges should try to really load up with great um, college football players and to make that a, uh, a launching pad for the NFL. 
Um, you, you've obviously seen Jason, like the, the big 10 bring USC and UCLA, the SEC is a power. So there's really like you, the sort of like college football at the moment is looking like two mega conferences. And then obviously some other conferences. Do you, um, in terms of what Dion has said, do you think it is realistic in the next five, 10, 15, 20 years where the best black football players would play for HBCUs? Or do you think that, Ultimately, because of the the television impact, or because of the um, you know name, image, likeness stuff, that you know the Ohio States and and the Alabamas, they'll sort of always get that like five star type of player. Because that's that's interesting to me. Because that if if the top athletes, particularly the top uh, African American athletes, ever decided to go the historically black college route, that's the paradigm shift that would be massive changing for everything because then the the media component the television networks would have to ultimately pay money to those leagues at, to pay money to that league and and put those guys on TV because they'd be the best the best product. Yeah, I, you know, it's a very interesting question and and making HBCUs a, an actual viable option is something that you know, when 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 Dion has said these things, I thought, okay, well, can this actually happen? Now, part of the situation that that he has is that he's a draw too. You know, I mean, I mean, and 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 I and I don't know if that. Well, I don't know. Let me take that back. I know for a fact that would not exist with many other coaches, if not most or all other coaches. He is a draw because of who he is. I do think that the the name, image, and likeness situation would make it very difficult to have for, for what you just asked to happen on a widespread level because you have to look at, okay, let's just take Caleb Williams, the, the quarterback who transferred from Oklahoma to USC. He's a five-star prospect. He was probably the number one freshman quarterback in the country last year. He follows Lincoln Riley from, from Norman to, to Los Angeles. The name image likeness opportunities that you can have as a star quarterback at USC are just going to be much greater, exponentially greater than what you might be able to pursue at, um, you know, a Grambling or uh, a Jackson State. I mean, just it's just it's just a different level, and so because of that, I think it would be a very high bar to clear. Yeah, I, I think financially, I understand why you'd always opt for USC at least at the moment. I mean, you can't tell a kid not to to go for a couple million. All right, Jason Reed's new book is "The Rise of the Black Quarterback." what it means for America. You can catch his work at ESPN, um, at Anscape, which is obviously uh, an ESPN property. And if I'm correct about this, Jason, you did a series um, of articles that uh, on the emergence of the black quarterbacks in the NFL that probably led to this book. So if one wants to, in addition to the book, uh, read about the genesis of where the book came from, um, you can... uh, you can go on Google and, and search Jason's name and find that. Jason, it seems like the reviews have been great and the book's getting a lot of attention. I'm really, really happy to see this. I know how much you put into it. And so I wish you nothing but the best of success. And uh, and thanks for giving me a, a couple minutes today on the Sports Media Podcast. Oh, stop it, Richard. Listen, man, thank you for the kind words. Thank you for having me. You know, you're, you're one of the people in this business who uh, does it the right way. And I uh, definitely appreciate you having me in, man, and making the time for me to talk about the book a little bit. You got it, Jason. Thank you. All right, back in the studio, my thanks to Jason Reed for his time and insight. And again, I hope people read his new book, The Rise of the Black Quarterback, What It Means for America. 
you like these kind of conversations, please head to the archives and check out some of the recent ones we've done. Prior to the Jason Reed episode, we did a whole episode on Brittany Griner. What happens next with her conversation with Dr. Danny Gilbert, who's a, um, she was just actually fascinating. She's an expert on U.S. hostage policy and, um, and diplomacy. And we got uh, into some questions that maybe you had not had answered about the Brittany Griner situation. Also, reporter T.J. Quinn from ESPN came on as well, and he's been, um, he's been diligently covering this case for a long time. Well, before that, Joe Buck, I'm Vince Scully. Did an emergency podcast on the, the passing of Vince Scully at age 94. And Joe Buck was excellent in terms of his um, recollections on Vince Scully. Shalise Manzing Young on the Deshaun Watson case. Uh, Ian Dark was a guest not too long ago on this podcast, as was Jimmy Pitaro, the uh, head of ESPN. Good morning, good morning football host Jamie Erdell was a guest recently. Did a roundtable on a reckoning for Hockey Canada with my colleagues at The Athletic, Katie Strong, Dan Robeson, and Ian Mendez. Again, head to the archives. Hopefully you will find some stuff you like. Thank you so much for the, uh, the kind words of the beginning of late. It really does help. If you haven't reviewed this podcast, please do. Head over there, leave a five-star review and a nice note. It, um, it does go a long way for this podcast to continue to stay on. I want to thank Patrick Antonetti for all his help and his hard work. Thanks to everybody at Cadence 13. And thank you for listening. We'll see you soon on the Sports Media Podcast.